I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome to Play Me, your ticket to some of the hottest shows by award-winning playwrights. We're back with our interview with Kevin Loring, the award-winning writer behind Where the Blood Mixes, available now on our podcast. Hey, Laura. Hi, Chris. So for anyone who hasn't had a chance to listen yet to Where the Blood Mixes, we hope you'll take the time to listen to this play, which is available now on our podcast. It explores the intergenerational effects of the residential school system, and it's set in Lytton, B.C., where Kevin Loring is from. We, of course, have been hearing a lot about residential schools and the disturbing discovery of children's unmarked graves at sites across the country. This play goes behind those headlines to reveal the true impact on survivors. Yes, and what I love about this play is that Kevin not only shows the suffering that resulted from the residential school system, But we also get to witness the resilience of the survivors. And at the same time, he also leaves a lot of room for humor, which is just such a great way to connect with the audience before hitting them with some of the difficult themes that this show delves into. Yes, and there's a really powerful closing line to the play that I've thought a lot about. It's beautifully written and it really stays with you. And I know you got to sit down and talk to Kevin about the long journey he had to writing the show, which theatre critic Glenn Sumi has called one of the best Canadian plays. Mm. It was such a pleasure to speak with Kevin. He is a Governor General award-winning playwright, actor, and director, as well as the Artistic Director of Indigenous Theatre at the National Arts Centre in Ottawa. We talked about how an actor's pushback to an early draft of the play had a major impact on its development the emotional moment he experienced when the show was first performed in front of his community in Lytton, B.C., and the weight and the meaning behind the term survivor. This is my interview with playwright Kevin Loring. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this show. I know where the blood mixes, the the genesis was at theater school for you, but that was a long time ago. Can you talk a bit about the journey that this play has taken? Certainly, yes. So I went to Studio 58 at Langara College in Vancouver, and this play started off as a character study that evolved into a, a monologue that I used as my end of my training solo show. When you graduate, you have to create your own solo show where you write it and direct it and present it yourself as the actor. And so this was the piece that I did. And it was what was inspired by an encounter I had with one of my uncles, my uncle Floyd. Uh, And so the the character name carried through. 
but the piece was called The Ballad of Floyd. It was a fiction. I invented a lot of the stuff around it, but I was sort of inspired by some of the sort of tragic, but also trickster elements of my uncle Floyd. He's a pretty awesome character. And the piece was about this character who was in a bar who was celebrating something at the beginning. And you realize throughout the course of the piece that he's celebrating his daughter's birthday. And then you realize also through the course of the piece that he hasn't seen his daughter in a very long time and that he lost her to the city is basically how the story went. And he was sort of, uh, it gets, it's sort of vague, but it, it describes this sort of this, this loss between father and daughter and, and sort of talks about his troubled history and, and it's quite poignant. And when I graduated theater school, I thought, oh, maybe I'll expand on this story. It started to evolve this story of this character Floyd in a bar. And, and so the piece, uh, I started to write it for a, a larger cast rather than just a solo show. And so the ballad of Floyd became a much bigger piece centered around this character's in a bar. He keeps waking up in a different bar, but it's like the same characters just rotate. And so like <laughs> the, you know, the mooch becomes uh, the bartender and the bartender becomes the mooch. <laughs> There's a female character that comes in and out as well. But also in that piece, uh, his wife is present and she haunts him and she sort of tries to get him to go try to find his daughter who's still down in the city. And so it was a very different play. <laughs> yeah. And that's the play that, that I workshopped at Factory Theater in 2004. And so uh, when I did that workshop, had a really wonderful actor, Gary Farmer, did the workshop and he had some really great questions off the top and really challenged me to, really, I think what he was going for was to be to go farther with it and write a second act. <laughs> he didn't feel like the piece was finished. He wanted to know, you know, what came next. But the piece was really, at the time, was very much about this man struggling with his alcoholism. And at the end of the play, he leaves the bar finally and the set collapses is the idea. The, the bar collapses. And I never, I've never staged that version of the play. Um, I've never staged the Ballad of Floyd. It's only had a workshop. But some of the questions that Gary asked really made me think, you know, in the middle of that workshop, he sort of threw the script down there and said, two drunk Indians in the bar. So what? Uh, right? Yeah. Uh, what's next? And, and that was his provocation. It was like, what's next? Yeah. Go deeper. What's more? There's more there. And that really made me think. That <laughs> also kind of scared me. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I sort of stepped away from it for a while and I didn't, uh, I didn't touch it for about two and a half years and I was writing all those other kinds of things. Like I was writing poetry and I was writing other plays, like the one that I have been staging this year, Little Red Warrior and his lawyer also was working on that piece and, and other pieces. Now I've got a folder full of script ideas and half-baked scripts. I got an opportunity to do a workshop of it in Calgary with Sharon Pollock, great uh, playwright who's passed now, but she was a great mentor of mine in my early career. And so she brought me in to do a workshop when I was thinking about doing a rewrite of it. I had an encounter with one of my cousins and we were at the bar. We were talking about an elder that we share, Shka'a, Louis Phillips is his name. And uh, he told my cousin, who's now a, a judge, uh, but he told my cousin that the meaning of the, the place where we come from, the village uh, Lytton, which is the ancient name for that place, is Klikomchin. And he said, you know, everybody says that the name for this place means where the rivers meet. And he says, but it, it's more than that. It means mm. the place inside the heart where the blood mixes. Wow. And just hearing that 
just hearing that, it actually transformed my whole thinking. It altered the way that I thought about language, the thought about colonization and what it does to how we imagine where we're from and like a place name, right? Like, and what that means, it was like, a, it was like onion skins, just unpeeling and meaning because it was like it's so much. It's like, A, it's those two major rivers meeting there. It's the salmon coming home. It's the story of Coyote and his heart that sits there at the river. Uh, you can see it today. It's a big rock and it's Coyote's heart. And that's when he was destroyed. And the destruction of Coyote is a reference to the destruction of the Intlikatmik or the, the damage that happened to the Intlikatmik nation with colonization is sort of in that story as well. And the idea of his return, Kayinchinkayap's return, is that resurgence that we're sort of, I think, that we're experiencing now culturally. Mm-hmm. And it was like a culture bomb went off in my mind. And I completely rewrote the script from that encounter. And because it was so vastly transformed from just these two drunks in a bar into this story of the daughter coming home, the finding him, like, reckon, like it was... It was a reconciling, a reconciliation play before the words were in the culture. Yeah. Right? Like nobody was, this was in the 2000s. This was like, nobody was talking about truth and reconciliation at that point, right? Like it was, I was being told, why are you writing a residential school play? You know, I was sort of being shamed away from trying to do that work. And I really was, I was trying to write a play about really the aftermath and the intergenerational struggle that the community that I come from, that I experienced growing up in. Uh, was suffering from. And so that's the long story of that. That's the genesis of where the blood mix is that came from this sort of, this sort of seed in theater school. And it just kept on growing and growing and growing along the journey. And it kept changing and transforming and coming more into clarity. And then uh, we did a workshop. I was a playwright in residence at the Vancouver Playhouse, which is now defunct back in the day in 2006, I believe. And we did a workshop at the end of the, or in the middle of the winter there at one point. And we had like 17 people come and listen to it. But it was a really pivotal moment. And the, the then artistic director, Glennis Lation, was directing the piece. And she continued to, like, directed the, the reading. And she went on to, to direct the, the premieres. She sort of looked at me and said, you know, I got an idea. Why don't we get some actors in a van and we take it to Lytton and we do it in front of your community. And I said, yeah, let's do that. That's brilliant. Let's do that. And so we wrote a grant to do just that. And it turns out that somebody on the granting jury was in looking for something just like an indigenous piece, I guess, for this brand new festival that they were going to start doing in Toronto called Illuminato. (laughs) And so we, we got, all of a sudden we got that money that carried us forward and, and, the next thing, we also got invited to the Magnetic North Theater Festival wow. out of that as well. And so this, this, you know, so now we had to build this show. <laughs> you know, it went from like, let's go take this little story and put it in a van and read it in front of some Native folks at Memorial Hall in Lytton to let's premiere at this inaugural international art festival and then the big Canadian art festival, Magnetic North. And this is your first show. This was your first professional show, wasn't it? Yeah. And suddenly you're in Luminato, Magnor. Yeah. You won a Governor General's Award. Like, how did that impact you as a young writer? That is, I've, I can't imagine that rocket taking off like that. It was definitely a ride. Like I told you this before, like I made a pact with myself that this would be the play that would 
teach me how to write plays and how to produce yeah. produce plays. And and so when this all started to happen, it was like just it felt like doors were slamming open. And and it was like any young artist, it's important to have champions who get behind you. And for sure in my early career, Glenn Slation was a champion of mine and uh opened doors and, and her participation in Playhouse and so there was a lot of support there. Right. I had a little company called Savage Society, which I still have. But still run is that's a little bit bigger now. Savage Society and the Playhouse, we did the tour that came after the premiere in twenty ten. It was part of the Olympics, the Cultural Olympiad. But yeah, it was I mean, I didn't know any better. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like I, I didn't know any different. Yeah, it was quite a ride. I and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that in the indigenous communities storytellers are of tremendous importance, probably the greatest importance to the community. And as you're talking about this show, I get a sense of responsibility from you when you talk. I mean, I can't speak for other communities. I know that storytelling, traditional, like there used to be storytellers who there were certain stories that were not just stories, but they were the history of the people. Yeah. And some of them, you know, the, the real true storytellers, there were some stories that took four days to tell. Wow. And they would go and prepare to tell the story. And then at big gatherings, they would come in and they would tell that story nonstop for four days. You know, there would be kids sitting around and people would come and go at certain parts of the story. But that storyteller would sit there for four days and tell that story. Wow. And there was a whole protocol around that and how that, you know, how you kept the storyteller telling the story. There were certain calls that you would give out and keep them encouraged to tell a story. And so certainly in our history, those kinds of storytellers were super important. Um, I think all people, uh, for all people, stories, stories are, are vital. They're, uh, I think as human beings, I think call ourselves the tool makers or the, the thinking ones, but like, I think we're the ones who tell stories. I think that was what makes us what we are. And I think all we really have are stories. And I was fortunate that I did some work on our creation stories or our foundational stories, what we call our spectacular stories. And they're like, uh, you know, people would call them creation stories or okay. foundational stories. So coyote stories fall in that realm. Are there stories about animals and how the, the world was sort of made as it is? The universe exists as it does because of certain exploits or certain mishaps that happen. And Coyote being like one of the primary transformers that makes those stories, uh, makes those realities happen. And so I was fortunate to have a few of those just listening at gatherings or from elders. And we were fortunate to have Jimmy Tudlikin who shared with us some stories when uh, we were working on a project called Ashitlam Ademif, which is a Songs of the Land project, which is a piece of uh, something that I would do in my community, uh, lit in British Columbia to start to revitalize these stories and to carry them forward in a, in a new way, keep them in the consciousness of the people because they're sort of written down in these ethnographers' notes and certain collections by non-Native people. And we've begun to write our own books about them as well. Um, Darwin Hanna has a great book, Our Tellings, that has verbatim recordings from elders of our stories. I take that responsibility quite seriously. Yeah. I, I think it's very important to be an Indigenous storyteller especially in this day and age. One thing that really stuck with me when I first read the piece and, and has been with me ever since 
is the Prayer of the Salmon, and it's written in, and please forgive me if I get this wrong, Intlakapna, is that? Is that? Intlakapmukstin. So it's Intlakapmuk is the people, Intlakapmukstin is the language of it. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I, and I know language is just so important to any culture, and I'm wondering if you can just talk about the importance of being able to write in your own language. Well, in that moment, it's a cultural transference between June and Christine. And it's meant to bring attention to the fact that the salmon are coming home, just as Christine is coming home, mm-hmm. right? It's this. It's also meant to, they're standing on the bridge that overlooks where those two rivers meet. And so that is the place where the blood mixes. When the fish come home, there's certain species that turn red by the time they reach us. And so it looks like two giant arteries pumping blood into the interior of the, the land. Wow. Again, that's the onion skins of reference that sort of blew my mind when I heard the the difference between where the rivers meet and the place inside the heart where the blood mixes. So much poetry in that. And so that moment when she's speaking Klikabuksjin, it's cultural transference, but it's it's the heart, right? Like the language is yeah. what they tried to take from June and Floyd and Mooch and my uncles and aunties and grandparents. Yeah. You know. So it's that it's that cultural uh resiliency. Yeah. Wow. The show had its West Coast premiere at Magnetic North. The the, the actual premiere was at Luminato, if I'm right. But the West Coast was at Mag North. And I'm just wondering, bringing that show to the part of the country that you're from and is your home, what was that premiere like? Oh, man, it was surreal. I mean, we just, the trajectory of this show opening at that festival on that particular day was nine years in the making. Wow. And, you know, if you think about it from like the creating the solo show in theater school to like bring it to the stage, it was it was about nine years. And so, and there Stephen Harper was making the official apology for the residential school system on that same day wow, was mind-blowing. Uh-huh. And even beyond that, the even more mind-blowing is that you can draw a direct line from that apology to the court case that came out of my community against the people and the crown, against like the church and the government uh, for the sexual abuse of a number of young boys who are now men from my community at St. George's Residential School. Out of that court case, one of my teachers, Terry Alec, Coyote, his name is also Coyote, Shinkayap, when he won his court case, which is one of the first court cases in the country against residential schools and the Crown, when the judge asked him what he wanted, he said, I want the Pope and the Prime Minister to apologize to what happened. Wow. So that's the trajectory of that moment, right? It's not just me and my my play. It's my elder and his story and his lived experience and his victory in the courts, and then that transferring into like worked its way through the you know the back calls until it finally landed. I mean, I, I don't think Mr. Harper chose to make that apology. I think it was like obliged to out of the results of the case, mm-hmm. and so and so there's a even deeper threads to that whole moment. But it was surreal. Like I was kind of in shock that it was happening. I was really kind of vibrating and I didn't really know 
what to make of it. And I knew it needed to be there and it was important and it was vital. And, and I was just sort of like, it's sort of caught in almost like literal shock, I guess. And then knowing that we were going to open that day, right? Wow. And so that opening was, I think the standing ovation lasted 10 minutes, 12 minutes. Sure, yeah. It was, it was, uh, I don't really have all the words for that day, you know, like it was pretty profound in so many different levels. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm here with playwright Kevin Loring and we're talking about his play, Where the Blood Mixes. We'll be right back right after this. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Kevin, I can only imagine uh, what it must have been like to perform this show in Lytton, in front of your family, in front of your friends and your community. Can you talk just a little bit about what that performance was like? Yeah, it was one of the scariest days of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, we'd been touring around BC and I was developing the play. So Glynis and I, we literally had a van full of actors and it was Tantu Cardinal and Billy Morasti and Ben Cardinal and David Ross, who's now passed on, but he used to be the artistic director of Western Canada Theater. That's a cast. Yeah. Halemia Sparrow. And we were touring around BC and I was making edits the whole time. I was like, we were testing it out in front of audiences. (laughs) At one point there was Maybe three or four times as many swear words as in it now. <laughs> did it in Trail BC, and I think a third of the house left in the first 15 minutes, just disgusted with me. <laughs> and the rest stayed, and that they stood at the end, you know, like, and so, but we kept tweaking it and tweaking it and tweaking it through that whole journey. We first, we started off with like two weeks in Kamloops and presented it at Kamloops in a studio. And then we took that and we toured it around. But it was interesting because we also flipped it with like readings of the ecstasy of Rita Joe. So we would do on, on some nights we would do, we actually did a reading of the ecstasy of Rita Joe in George Riga's house in the Okanagan. Really? Yeah. Wow. And another one, we did a, a reading of it at the Kamloops courthouse. Yeah. We, so it was this bizarre, not bizarre, but interesting, I think, sort of dichotomy between like this, you know, a uh, settler written play that is described as the seminal Canadian play. Yes. That really deals with, you know, the the trauma Indigenous folks experience at the hands of colonialism and the cycles of violence that are within that. And this, you know, this upstart playwright uh, and his little little play about his hometown. And so it was uh, quite quite amazing. But on that day, we'd set everything up in the Memorial Hall on the reserve and we had everything all ready to go and nobody showed up. So like, for, so at the time that we'd said, nobody, nobody was, we were all ready to go. And it was like, what? Uh, let's just hold for another five. <laughs> we had like feast, we had food ready and we had everything going. And then let's hold for another five. Wow. And then let's hold for another five. <laughs> and then all of a sudden <laughs> everybody showed up at once. Like every, like over 200 people showed up 
uh, was like we filled the hall, maybe 200, 200 people, but they all came 15 minutes late <laughs> all at the same time. You know, the actors still had pages at hand and we had like the bones of a set, just theater blocks really like yeah. you do. And I sat right behind my uncle Floyd and his wife, Diana. And the character Floyd is based on your uncle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, inspired by, I wouldn't call sure. it based on, it's it's okay, not his yes. story. My uncle Floyd also has a tragic story in that he lost his daughter, but it was through a hit and run. He lost one of his children to a hit and run when he was quite young. And I don't think he ever really recovered from that. I don't know if you ever do. Yeah. Uh, anyways, it was, I love my uncle Floyd. He's awesome. He always made me laugh. I thought he was pretty cool and super tough, super resilient. But anyways, he, I sat right behind him and every time the character that's named after him was you know, you'd hear his name Floyd. He would giggle behind his hand. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and he yeah. and Diana would look at each other and then he would giggle behind their hands. <laughs> it's so cute. And at the end, people laughed, they cried. And at the end, they stood up and they cheered. They supported the piece. And, and for me, that was the most important audience ever. Uh, the most important day in the quote unquote theater that I've ever had in my life. And it transformed also the way that I look at how theater should be made. I think that like when you're talking about a community, it's important to have some connection to that community too. And to and so I always try to bring as much as I can, I try to bring any work that I'm developing. I try to connect it back to the community or present it to the community and, and other young indigenous playwrights that I work with, I try to encourage them to do the same. And through Savage Society, we facilitate that. You know, we, we facilitate that connection to what we call connection to the land or, or what we call it a land-based dramaturgy. And why is that so important? It roots it. It roots it. And it also, like, it's easy to talk about somebody when they're not around. Uh, but, like, if you present it to that community and they get to hear what you're saying about them and get some really, yeah. really good feedback. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about Christine's return. It's obvious the whole play hangs on that. That is the the, the pivotal plot point, but it obviously means so much more. Can you talk a little bit about Christine's return? Certainly. I mean, Christine is the renewal. Christine is the next gen. Christine is the scoop kids, right? There's, we call it the 60s scoop, but it's never stopped. Yeah, You know, you can go on, it goes the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, the 2020s. Like it's a scoop every decade. I know so many folks who so disconnected to their identity, to their family, to their communities and ache for that. There's always like a giant hole in their hearts about that. And sometimes they don't get the ideal picture when they do connect. And so that's a reality. That's just, that's, those things are indigenous realities, right? But also the strength of that, the strength of being alone out there in the world, the strength of finding your way home like the salmon, yeah, the strength of transforming. Transformers, like coyotes, a transformer, like all of our, our supernatural beings, are, they're like coyotes often described as the trickster. But in our culture, yeah, sure, he's a trickster, but he's more importantly known as the transformer and maybe the most powerful transformer. Okay. And Christine transforms with her full heart, with her will to come home, with her determination. And so she's the youth, she's the salmon, she's the hope, she's the the bright light at the end of the tunnel, she's the future. The first thing she sees, though, when she arrives is conflict. Trauma. 
the first thing she sees is trauma. Yeah. Right. She encounters raw trauma. Right. And it doesn't sway her. That's the, that's, she doesn't, like she could have run. Yeah. She could run right then and there. Right. Um, Yeah, you're right. But she's brave and she's strong and she's determined and she's come all this way. Of course. Yeah. And so she encounters that trauma and it doesn't scare her away. Yeah. And that's, that's key because it could. And some people might say, well, it should. Yeah. You know, like you should be scared. And, yeah. and it, it, it's a reality. Like it's, it can be tough in our communities, but she's able to keep going forward until, you know. Yeah. It's interesting that you talk about the genesis of this piece because it was born out of a scene in a bar. And what we have right now, the bar and alcohol is almost like its own character. And it's not lost on me. And I'm sure anybody who listens that it's a white barkeep who is serving the alcohol. And I just want to know what's, there's, there's obviously more than just what we see on the surface happening there. Why did you make those choices? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say also conversely, that as much as the alcoholism and the bar is its own scene, so is the land and the river. Mm. So like the landscape where they're at and the river where they're fishing on is also a character in the piece with the, the osprey, the salmon, the sturgeon, yeah. all of those are characters yeah. in the show, right? Yeah. They show up on stage and stagings of the show uh, in various ways. But yeah, of course, like the relationship between George and the other characters is is a colonial relationship. Yeah. It's like, yes, we're neighbors. Yes, I'll take you hunting, but I'm still in charge here. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, there's still that, no matter how friendly they get, mm-hmm. when it goes sideways, it's that white man who's going to tell you to shut up and get out. Yeah. And it's that white man who's going to bring down the authority on these native bodies. And so that's the dynamic at play. But it's also the enabling. In some instances, like the alcohol is like a medicine because it helps you sort of dull the pain. In the other instance, it's the poison that's destroying the community. Yeah. And he's the sort of conduit in between. He's friendly with them. He observes everything. He sees it all. He knows them all. He's friendly with them all. He likes them all. Like he says, he... They go hunting together. He take, Mooch takes them hunting. Yeah. And there's a friendship and a fellowship there. But when the things go down and things get hairy, he comes out with a baseball bat. Yeah. He's the authority. Yeah. And, you know, I was, when I was writing it, I was thinking, what would these characters be if they weren't here? If there wasn't colonialism? Yeah. Like, who would Floyd be? Who would Mooch be? Who would Christine be? Who would June be? And in my mind, it was always Floyd would be the leader. Floyd would be chief. Hmm. Floyd would be like somebody who would people would admire and look up to and be strong and like assured and yeah. Mooch would be a seer, a vision storyteller, somebody who'd hold more esoteric knowledge. And June would be that medicine woman, that guide, that also that warrior woman. We have a strong <laughs> tradition of of female warriors and in Tlakat Mukdeshan, and she's you know. I, Grew up around a lot of really strong women and yeah. wouldn't think twice to knocking a man on his ass. Then <laughs> <laughs> so there's all of those wonderful traits. You know, that, and I want them to be too archetypal, but that's that when I was imagining like what's the inverse? Like how has their residential school experience warped them away from maybe where they would have gone? There's one line that really hangs there. In the show, when I was working on the show, it stayed with me. When I first read the script, it really 
embedded itself in me. And that was when Floyd is talking to Christine about some of his past friends. And he says, many of them are gone. And she responds, you're a survivor. Yeah, I think when I was writing it, we were just starting to talk about the residential school survivors in that language. And it landed for me like that. That's what these, all of these characters. And if you remember, excuse me, Floyd's response is, uh, we both are, I guess. Yes, that's right. I forgot. And so and he's saying she's a survivor too, <laughs> right? Like, and really it is that reference, of course, to the residential, surviving residential school, but it's the surviving the aftermath <laughs> as well. And she's also a survivor yeah. of all of that history. And, and being that, the idea of being a survivor is that speaking to that resilience, speaking to that perseverance, speaking to how much these characters have all been through and are still, uh, still keeping on. Wow. So, Kevin, this, this show, do you see it as primarily a show about residential schools or is it, is it more? Well, for me, it's, I mean, it's for sure related to the residential school reality and the fallout from that, the intergenerational fallout from that, absolutely. But in a very real way, it is a play about surviving suicide. It is about the friends of somebody like Anna in the show takes her own life. And so it really is a, they're friends of her, her, her friends and, and her daughter and down the road and, and all of the, the repercussions of that decision and that, that loss is really a huge, really the center of what these characters are dealing with. And I think that it's, um, it's often described the play as, as being a, a residential school play, but it really is a play about survival and about surviving that legacy, but also the very real trauma and pain of being a survivor of someone's suicide. Yeah, I guess it's just so interconnected as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was growing up in Lytton, there was a, I mean, it's still an ongoing problem in, in many Indigenous communities, but especially when I was in the 80s, it was a huge epidemic of suicides in my community and it had an immense impression on, on me as a human being. And so sure, yeah. I think that's uh, also what really comes, comes through in the play. Yeah, absolutely. You know, here at Play Me, obviously we, we believe in the power of theater. We know that it can change worldviews. It can, it can really have a massive impact on how we view history and, and people. And I'm just wondering, can you talk a bit about that from the perspective of indigenous theater? Sure. I think, well, indigenous theater, one of the things way of looking at it is that for thousands of years, our stories were just the stories of this land. Yeah. You know, the Ashitlama Demiqua, the songs of the land. It just was. Then we have had this period of interruption where not only have our stories been outlawed and our children imprisoned for speaking and put in these residential schools, which were basically prisons and work camps, and no. uh, beaten for speaking their language, which holds not just their their words, but their indigenous thoughts, their indigenous science, their indigenous cosmology, the way in which that culture relates to and expresses this journey we called life in this world (laughs) and the other worlds as well, the spiritual worlds, like all of that's encompassed in our language and in our stories. And our stories told in our language are also something even like I talk about the onion skins, like I know my stories as English things that have been recorded, 
but our stories told in the language are even more like multidimensional, right? Like they, they all, every phrase is an onion skin unwrapping another onion skin. Every reference is referencing landmarks, places, historical events. Like there's like memes within memes, right? Like within each of those. <laughs> and so it's uh, that history, I think is, or that history, but that, that reality, that indigenous worldview is the things that we're, I think I as a playwright, I'm trying to reconnect to. Uh, through my work and in, in, with my community, but also in the playwriting that I do as as an artist, and other indigenous playwrights across the Turtle Island are doing the same. I think they're reaching for something broader. They're challenging, I think, a lot of this country's conceits about itself. <laughs> you know, like I think that uh, for a long time we've sort of gotten away with thinking we're just just that much better than America, and that's sort of the Canadian identity, but. The indigenous reality, indigenous stories challenge all of that yeah. and sort of show show the ugly side of this colonial project we call Canada. Yeah. And I think that when you hear and when you see indigenous stories and when you listen to indigenous singers and see indigenous dancers, what they're doing is they're dancing the land. They're, they're singing the songs of the land. They're telling the stories of their ancestors whose bones are still in the ground and have been there for tens of thousands of years. And so there's a... It's a long chain of writing that's happening. And I don't just mean W-R, yeah. <laughs> I-T, right? Like it's, there's, a, there's a writing that is happening yeah. that is reconnecting things that have been broken or disconnected and displaced. I think that's the power of it. I think that's reconnecting to a truth and a power and a reality and a perception of this world and this land that is beyond, you know, maple syrup and... <laughs> you know, mooses. I mean, those are all really indigenous things. Maple syrup and yeah, mooses are really true. indigenous, actually. <laughs> so maybe, guess, maybe it's those other things, right? How like, about Anne of Green Gables? There you go. And, yeah, there we go. Uh, and yeah, no, absolutely. I think that there's a depth there, right? Yeah. It's a depth there that, yeah. is, that is really vital. You know, when you were first appointed as the artistic director of Indigenous Theatre for the National Arts Centre... A, that was earth-shattering because you're the first artist. Like, you were brought in to create this new institution. You, I know in an interview, asked the question, and I think you asked it because you knew you had to answer it, is who is the Indigenous Theatre for at the NAC? And I'm wondering if I can ask you the same question, but not just through the lens of the NAC, but looking at it at a much more global perspective. Who is indigenous theater for it's for the indigenous artists okay. and it's for the indigenous audience but it's i think it's a, it's a much more nuanced thing than just saying that that's a even that's an easy answer right because there's the dynamic of well where is the nac right the nac is located on unceded algonquin territory right yeah in, in the nation's capital which is stolen land. Yeah. <laughs> so like, it's yeah. like, and it's this crown corporation that is, you know, it's doing this great work of showcasing and platforming all of these amazing artists from all around the world mm-hmm. and across Turtle Island. And, you know, it's a lot of really wonderful things come out of that. It's also has a history of being a very sort of elite center, right? Like, like any major art center, but, but you know, like, that has an orchestra and, uh, you know, bunch of stages and and is got mandated to be the national yeah stage right there's a there's a lot of um 
prestige and, and all mm-hmm. these things that go around that. But a big part of my work as the artistic director of Indigenous Theatre there is to try to open it up to uh, audiences that maybe have felt excluded by that um, sparkle and sheen. And so I think that it's for everyone. And I think that it's for, it's for the artists to share their truth and their story. It's for the Indigenous people to see themselves reflected on the stage. And it's for the settlers to come in and the other audiences, the other members to, to come in and experience that truth and that power and see that resonating on those very special stages. And, and a lot of my work is to try to bring in, like I said, a lot of, to bring in folks who, who maybe historically haven't felt very comfortable there. How about beyond the NAC? Who is Indigenous Theatre for? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Beyond the NAC, well, I guess it is for my vision of what this role at this department is. I mean, we often have this sort of inward focus, but I've wanted to, I always try to have one foot on stage and one foot in community is the saying. And I'm successful at that in various degrees and not successful at that in various degrees. And so I think around the world, when the NAC chose to create this department, it sent a message to you know other nations who have indigenous populations. Most countries in the world actually do have indigenous populations, believe it or not. And so that you know, these voices are important to listen to. And you know, I think that it's it's for I don't know if I'm gonna get real get real heady here, but it's for all of humanity to hear these indigenous stories. But the reality, of course, is that it's so local. Right, yeah. like it's a, it, it essentially operates like the NAC has got a, a national. The, the sort of dichotomy and the and the tension of the NAC is that it's got a national mandate, but it has a very local presence that we we all departments are really trying really hard to yeah. to stretch out and to and to make broader reach, broader impact than just uh, in the the capital region. Yeah, and you know when you you look at the very rich history of theater, particularly political theater, you know, look at Europe. It is it is destroyed establishment. Yeah. It has changed the political course uh, of history. Yeah, but unlike say a news report with drama, you actually experience all the emotions. You experience the the life that that people are living, especially in such difficult circumstances like like this. And that's just so powerful. I agree. I a hundred percent agree. I mean it's one of the one of the things that I find like attractive about theater that attracted me to theater is is that I mean you can listen to a politician talk about an issue. You can see it on the news. You can see this devastation or this these awful yeah. stories. But and you could just change the channel or you could just like ignore it. And many people do. But if you go to the theater, you choose to go to the theater and you're sort of unsure about an issue, you could watch a play that will transform your heart. Yeah. And will reach your heart and open a door that you didn't know even know was there. Yeah. And that is the true power of theater and any kind of art. But I think theater is a particular, particularly uh, strength of theater is, is that it can open those doors within and all of a sudden, like, you don't even realize. I mean, some of the, some of the plays that have transformed me are plays that I hated. Like, I just, <laughs> like, and, and it wasn't because it was like, you know, I, I mean, I generally don't like the really sort of fluffy stuff. I'll be like, ah, that's fine. That was, that was lovely. But, like, the plays that transformed me were the ones I had initially completely wrote off. Yeah. But then I couldn't stop thinking about. And then, like, six years later, I'm like, oh, my God, that was so brilliant. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? But it had to work on me because it, it challenged my aesthetic. It challenged my worldview. It challenged things that I held sacred and precious uh, in a way that I was not expecting. Yeah. And then over time, it just couldn't let it go. On, and it just kept working away inside. And I think that is the true power of theater when it's, when it's really good and Part of the challenge we have is people were writing and go, your play made me very angry. And it's yeah. like, yeah, it's supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> it's supposed oh. to be really angry. More more now than ever. I think that yeah. like you're, I think that a lot of the, the responses people, you know, you get these days are like, your play made me feel, right? <laughs> yeah. Like they don't say that, but that's what they're saying. Yeah, exactly. I'm very upset. It's like, yeah, that was a character who said that. Yeah. And that playwright wrote that character to say that, to get exactly the response you're having. So that you could think about something or line you up for something or, or, you know what I mean? Like, like bring, like, it's a part of the craft of playwriting. Yeah. And, and we are so accustomed to not, we're so, now we're like, <laughs> if we feel something, we feel like we've been assaulted, but it's like, well, you're, it's, it's not that it's just, it's, you know, and but that, that being said, plays can have, because they're so potent and powerful and because, you know, you know. Sometimes plays, especially indigenous plays and uh, and plays of other um, racialized minorities could deal with a lot of trauma, like systemic family trauma, mm -hmm. um, systemic, um, like just like trauma, right? Yeah. And and so yeah, yeah. it's a responsibility, I think, uh, these days we've, we've taken the responsibility of like, when we have a play that does that, we make sure that we have like trauma counselors like set aside sure, yeah, so that absolutely. people are a place to go just chill out after the show so we don't send them back into traffic while they're totally triggered yeah because that can be uh, an issue as well and it's something that we all have to be careful of that was playwright kevin loring talking about his play where the blood mixes you can hear the whole play anytime right here on our podcast and we'll be back next week with the timely play that's been a big hit at Stratford, Serving Elizabeth by Marcia Johnson. Serving Elizabeth begins in Kenya in 1952, during that fateful royal visit of Princess Elizabeth and the Duke of Edinburgh. Mercy, a restaurant owner, is approached to cook for the royal couple. But as a staunch anti-monarchist, how can she take the job? Don't forget that you can listen to Play Me on CBC Radio 1 every Sunday night at 9pm and Wednesdays at 11pm. Thanks for listening. We'd love to know what you think about Play Me. You can connect with us by emailing playme at cbc.ca. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Play Me through Google or Apple Podcasts. By subscribing, you can listen to all our past shows and you won't miss a single one of our new episodes. And while you're there, we would love it if you would consider rating and reviewing us. It helps spread the word about our podcast, bringing theatre to a whole new audience. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley in partnership with CBC Podcasts. Our associate producer is Mary Chris Rivera. A special thanks to our CBC team. Anna Ashate is our digital producer, and our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. The director of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani, and the executive director is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is an Expect Theatre production. For more information about our plays, please visit playmepodcast.com.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.